You may have, um, you may not have grown up in traditions that praise like this uh, very often to pray the same thing over and over again. Why do we do that? Um, I, as a pastor, I get questions about prayer a lot. Uh, it's an understandable thing, you know. For example, if God knows everything and can do everything, why do we pray? What are we telling Him that He doesn't know? And of course, nothing. He does already know. Um, But one of the things that prayer does is not so much that it pulls the right levers with God to get what we want from Him, but as we pray, it shapes us and changes us. So by praying like this again and again, it's actually teaching us to continue to care about all of these things that we're praying for, which I know I need. I'm I'm quite frankly busy praying for our church. I don't really think about the other churches of this valley. But every week it's a reminder, these are my brothers and sisters, I should be praying for them, that kind of thing. So um, I'd encourage you uh, to to come with that attitude and that spirit as we pray together uh, every week. Um, This past week, uh, on Thursday, we had a night to talk together uh, about how we as uh, EPC Church, that's our denomination, Evangelical Presbyterian Church, Think more about how uh, the issue of women being ordained as elders, if that's a thing where you come from, uh, you understand, and if it's not, don't worry. Um, You don't have to know all the terms. It's okay. Um, So I I gave a talk with my friend, uh, Alex Osler, who's a professor at Montreat, and uh, I explained some of the rationale for why you would believe in women being ordained as elders, and he gave the other position, and it was a good time. Um, Apparently... It broke Alex. Ben Brandenburg told me that he was, didn't teach the next day because he got sick. So he may have given us all the plague. Not the coronavirus plague, but just general plague. Um, I didn't get sick, so I don't know what that's saying. But um, Alex is, is a friend, and um, I'm, I'm very appreciative for him being with us. We had a good conversation. We recorded that uh, and if you want to hear it, you can, you can listen to it. I encourage you to do so. We also have a list of resources of all kinds for your reading, watching, listening. If you'd like one of those, I still have, I still have that, uh, and I can make a copy of that for you. Um, and then the other, other thing that we did is at the end, there's some folks here that don't come to our church, and so we just, for, the, for this last bit, we had a conversation at the end um, where for our particular congregation, uh, I had some news. And um, I, what I told them was that for basically the past four years, we've approached this issue wrong procedurally as an EPC church. And um, I didn't know that. If I had known that, we wouldn't have done that. But I didn't know, and therefore I led us into doing the wrong thing for four years, which is a long time. And a lot of people got hurt, which I'm very sorry for. Believe me, I, th- I think about them a lot. Um, and I explained this was mostly my fault because um, I'm, the, I'm the person who's an elder every year. Other elders are only elders for a few years, and they're not. I'm the one who is every year. Um, so I, what had happened is years ago when we were figuring this out, I just had a conversation with somebody, assumed they're right, and did what they said, and we just kept going. And he was wrong, I was wrong, we've been wrong um, under my, my leadership, which I hate um, very much. Um, 
However, we, what we told our congregation is that this issue of whether women should be ordained uh, into the office is now entirely in the hands of our congregation. Uh, it's not, we won't be doing it the same exact way we've done it before. It's now up to the vote of the members of this church totally and completely. Um, so that's also why I would encourage you to listen and to do your homework because this decision is, is yours now, which uh, I, I'm quite happy with uh, that, that uh, I don't have to make that decision for everybody anymore. So if you don't understand any of that because you've never been here before, that's okay. You don't have to understand that. Uh, if you don't understand that and you come here all the time and you want to know more, please come and find me or any other person who is an elder or a deacon or has been, and we'll try to help you, point you in the right direction. Um, we, we also did, uh, we recorded a little bit. We recorded that part, right, Jeremiah? <laughs> Listen to the enthusiasm. Um, so if you're, if you're a member and you want to hear more about that, it's basically I just said what I just said, but much longer. Um, you can hear a little bit of that, too. He'll have to send you a link specifically to that, because that's more of a private recording. But the other, the other thing is, is public. So um, now we're going we're gonna to talk about the Bible, uh, specifically Revelation chapter 5. That's where we are. We're in a series today in the book of Revelation. We have been uh, for several weeks. And we will be until Easter. There are, some, uh, there are some portions of this series that I have not been and am not looking forward to trying to figure out what to say. I've been very clear and honest about that. This book is not necessarily my jam, but it is Scripture, and therefore we've, we are responsible for it and called to it and benefit from it. The words of Revelation themselves are very clear about this. However, some chapters just sort of jump out at you and, and grab you, um, and this certainly this chapter is one of them. Revelation chapter 5, it's not that long, so I'm just going to read the whole thing. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Then I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. One of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you are slain and by our blood you ransom people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, 
And I heard among, around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Let me pray for us. Lord God, we are so grateful for your word. Special revelation, you revealing yourself to your people. We pray, Lord God, that we would stand under the gaze of the seven-eyed lamb. That we would be searched and examined. And that we ourselves would have our eyes opened to see what is true and good. That we would worship you in response. Move our hearts and open our ears that we might hear your voice. Amen. This uh, last, last week, chapter 4, I told you is the beginning of this most extended vision of the book of Revelation. And it happens, 4 and 5 go together. So 4 is uh, setting the stage for what we see here in 5. And in chapter 4... Uh, John sees the throne. There's not much attention given to the person actually sitting on the throne. There's not much description of that. There's more description of the throne and what's around the throne. And you'll notice that if you put these two chapters together, the, there are a progress, there's a progression of response. The first uh, elicits these spoken statements about the one who sits on the throne. And by the end of chapter 5, there's this crescendo of song. And there's progression from speech to song as our eye with John is drawn to the person who will uh, form the anchor, the center post of the rest of the book. And John uh, says that, he is there, and there is a dilemma in the throne room of heaven, which also is sort of the inner sanctum of the temple, the holiest place, because no one is there to open this scroll. It's a sealed scroll, and seals are put on scrolls because only the ones with sufficient authority, the ones to whom they are addressed, are able to open it, to break the seal of a scroll and not be the intended recipient or the one who's authorized to open it is a violation, it's a crime, and there seems to be no one who is able to open the book of the scroll. And John here is, is using Old Testament imagery to help us understand and to think in this direction. Uh, Ezekiel, in Ezekiel chapter 3, is, is given a scroll, and Ezekiel's call as a prophet is to eat that scroll in a vision because he's about to give warnings and judgments to Israel. And at the end of the book of Daniel, in Daniel chapter 12, verse 4, Daniel is given a scroll, and that scroll is sealed. And it's supposed to stay sealed until the one who can come to open it and to read it. And in both prophets, we are, we are coming to expect that 
tied up in these scrolls are words of warning and judgment. But warning and judgment is intended both to protect the people of God and eliminate the enemies of God. So we want the message to be open. And that's why you see John uh, desperately sad that no one is there to open the scroll. He wants it open. We are kind of perched on the edge with him, hoping, wishing, waiting with him that somebody will come who will be worthy to open this message of warning and judgment so the people of God could be brought into safe harbor. And then everything changes. There's a pronouncement that, behold, there actually is one who is worthy to open it. Um, Peter Lightheart, in his commentary, says the best way to understand what is happening in Revelation chapter 5 is to see this uh, through the lens of, or allow this to be the lens through which we interpret the ascension of Jesus. Because something was a state in the room, and then things change when this person enters the room, and it changes forever. And what he hears is that, behold, there is one who is, who is worthy to open the scrolls. It is, it is the Lion of Judah, the Root of David. Now, this is, this is important because he's tying together prophetic imagery from the Old Testament again. And it had been prophesied long ago by, by old Father Jacob, Father Israel, that from Judah would come a one who would hold the scepter of rule, and from his hand that scepter would not depart. And it was also promised to David from the tribe of Judah that one of his sons would sit on the throne forever, ruling justly for all people. Because what apparently is needed is not just anyone to open the scroll. It's not, and it's not just a holy person. Because notice, God is there. He has the scroll in His hand. Why doesn't He open the scroll? Angels are there. Why don't they open the scroll? Because it has to be one of, one of these people, the sons of men who must be worthy to open the scroll. And so John is told that there is one, the Lion of Judah, the prophesied one, the Root of David. And John picks up his eyes and he looks to see the Lion of Judah, and what he sees is a lamb. He doesn't see the the ferocity of the golden-maned lamb. He sees this strange lamb who has seven horns and seven eyes, and it is standing, but yet appears to have been slain. And in the, in the biblical language, horns mean strength and power. And for there to be seven horns of power is, is saying that he has all power. And eyes see, and for him to have seven eyes is, is to say that the lamb has all power and can see all things. And yet he is a lamb that has been wounded and seemingly slain, but is for some strange reason also standing and alive. And then the songs kick in. Worthy are you to open the scroll. Because you have been slain. And your blood has purchased a people. You are the son of David, who is able to redeem from every nation and tribe and tongue and people. 
and the songs build. The living creatures and the elders that we talked about last time offer their voices, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. To him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And something is happening here in the repetition of these things and the listing of these things and even in the numbers of these things that we are being given some indication of what is happening in the reign of this one, this lion lamb, the son of David who is also David's root. Oftentimes, in, as we've already seen in the book of Revelation, there are these repeated threefold acclamations of God's holiness and power. But in these songs that we see, what we often see mixed into these threefold listings are these lists of four. And if you remember last week, John seems to be using these lists of four to describe the earth how we can talk about it. there's north and south and east and west, how the, the world is made up of four elements in, in their mind. And so when we talk about the lamb who is slain here, there are lists of the, the dominions of his power and of the scope of his reign. So he says, he, it said, for you were slain, And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. The whole earth is being described. And then in the same way, uh, where his dominion uh, is given is is described as, as being above the earth and on the earth and under the earth and in the sea. So that everything that you can imagine from the top down is dominion. And what's happening is that even in the language of the praise of heaven, it seems to be that earth is riding up with this son of David and somehow finding itself in the middle of the heavens where God lives. And this is, of course, speaking to the trajectory of the whole book of Revelation. Because the whole book of Revelation is not moving us to the day where we can finally hit the eject button and shoot out of the earth and escape all this bad stuff. But the the trajectory is, is quite opposite, that actually earth and heaven are moving towards one another, are merging towards one another. And when Jesus enters in via his ascension, when he, as one of us, goes into the throne room of God, he is pulling earth into heaven with him so that heaven might, in some sense, be pulled down into earth with us. It is the threefold repetition of the holiness, the untouchable transcendence of God, uncomprehendingly unforeseen being merged and joined with the fourfold nature of the the ways that the earth and the seas and the skies. In Jesus, the whole story is moving to a merging point. Why is he the one? Why does the story hinge and revolve around him? Because quite clearly, the pivot is him. He is the center point around whom the whole story will will be told. 
And ultimately, John's revelation is most clearly a revelation of this person, Jesus. And the the people tell us, the creatures, the angels, they say, worthy are you to take the scroll, to open its seals, to do the thing that we need. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. This fundamental act is what makes this one, this son of David, the all-conquering lion, the one who is able to open the scroll. Jesus is the hero of the story who bears his teeth and wields his claws by spreading his arms wide and let death sink its teeth into him. Augustine will write about this passage and say that Scripture will use lion imagery for Satan. Peter warns the people that there is a lion who prowls around seeking to devour you. And if that is true, then what we need is a lion to combat him on our behalf. And the lion of God bears his teeth towards the devil while being towards his people, a gentle and meek lamb. This is the unique way that only Jesus can work. I, uh, last night, I, I was watching the movie Dunkirk with my wife. Uh, it came out a few years ago. It's about the uh, evacuation in World War II from Dunkirk. If you know the story, the, the British Army, the British and French Army were pushed and pushed and pushed back by the Nazis in 1940, and they were backed against the sea, and they needed basically a miracle to, to survive and stay in the game, to stay in the fight, and the seas were rough, and this was not the ideal place or time, but uh, a bunch of things happened that miraculously allowed much of the British army to, to escape. And this movie tells the story by focusing on a few different strands. But one of the, the strands is on this pilot, Farrier, who's in these, you know, he's in the cool Spitfire. He's having cool, like, dogfights. It's just fun to watch. Um, and part of his story is that he has only so much fuel. So he's on, he's on the clock. He has to be able to get into the battle, fight for like 20 minutes, and get back, or else you go down. And a bunch of things happen, and he reaches the point where he has to turn around. And he looks in his sort of rearview mirror thing and can see in the water below helpless British ships and a German plane coming to bomb them. And the music builds, and the look on his face is very clear as he does the calculations, and he turns around, and he goes back to fight. And what he ends up doing is expending every drop of his fuel to shoot planes out of the sky for as long as he can. And near the end of the movie, he's, just, he's totally out of fuel, and he's using the velocity of his descent to just keep gliding and he just glides as a landing into the beach of Dunkirk where Nazis are waiting. He gets out, and it's awesome. 
takes his flare gun and he shoots into the cockpit and sets the thing on fire. And he's standing there watching his plane burn to pieces as Nazis come and pull him away. And that's the end of his story. He decided, he did the calculation, and he decided, uh, I'm going to give my life so that they can have a, a little better chance at staying alive. And as I watched that scene where the, the light of the flames are, are flickering off of his face, fully aware and conscious of what he has done and what awaits for him, I was struck by how much we love stories like this. The, these kinds of stories uh, are universal. When you're watching this film, you're, you may feel like, um, oh, I wish he'd made it. Of course, you kind of wish that he made it. But you love him even more because he didn't. He is a, he is a special kind of hero in the story because he goes to certain death, because he willingly gives himself over to the torture of Nazis. And we, we tell all kinds of stories like that. We love the hero who will willingly give themselves up even to the death for the sake of somebody else. The best stories that we tell are like this. And I would suggest is that that's because that story was woven into us. That we as people were meant to look for that kind of story. And what, what's unfortunate is that by and large, most of us live lives that believe that that kind of story is mostly fantasy. It is mostly the, the work of movies, of books, and when we happen to come across a real-life story that is somewhat close to that, we love it, we'll kill for it, we die for it. That's why so much of our own stories, the myths of our families, of our regions, of our countries, we love to frame it in this way. Because you were meant to love this story. You were meant to look for a hero who would launch himself into the death for people that he loved. The problem is that we, we settle for a cheaper version of the story. We settle for a version of the story that ends, you know, at minute whatever, 120, and we walk on. But what the book of Revelation is saying with the the songs of the heavens are saying is that every one of those stories are but a, a dim echo of the true story of the whole world. That actually there is one who actually really did live and die and live again for the sake of the love of his people. And as much as we long for this kind of sacrificial love and the characters of the stories that we love, their actions are only confined to a small group of people, even within the story, usually. 
But what the, the heavens are telling us, what the book of Revelation is telling us, is the actions of this one, this, this son of David, this lion of the tribe of Judah, he actually, his actions change everything for everyone. The limits of his story are not nearly so small as a single chapter or a single novel or a single film. It's actually his life becomes the hinge point of all of history. And he himself, what makes him the even better hero of the story is that his power that he gives up is not minimal. This one pilot in the story, he has only one plane to fly. He is only one person. He is not giving up anything except his own small life for the sake of one small activity in a grand effort. But what the stories of Scripture will tell you is that this one, what makes him so different and so surprising, is that he is the King of heaven and earth. He has all things in his power. And he has all the riches, all the acclaim that he needs. He is eternally self-sufficient and happy. He can do all things. And he lays it aside for the sake of his people. He is not one small person. He is the person. He has all things. And what he does is he takes up our own small story within his hands. And he folds it into his own. He embraces our own dusty death. The way that the text talks about where he is praised by saying that he is praised uh, in the heavens and the earth and under the earth and in the seas. And he heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all, all that is in them singing this song. That small detail that all the creatures under the earth, we are the ones who are under the earth. This is the one whose story does not end with death, but himself went into the, the underest of all under the earth. So the question of Psalm, of Psalm 88, can the dead praise God, is answered in Revelation chapter 5 with a resounding yes. Because there is no place that the Lamb of God would leave unconquered. There is no place that he would not tread the, the walk of his triumph, that he would not march and declare his victory. And in this, we have this correction to us. We still are so tempted to view the world through the lens of pointy teeth and sharp claws and power broken over another with the might of our own arms. And here we see that the Lion of Judah exercises his strength and his power in a totally different way by the surrender of his own life, the conquering by his own death. Jesus is the hero that all of us long for in all of our other stories. But he is so much better. And he 
to you, to me, though he has all of this strength and power and ferocity, he is gentle like a lamb. The one who comes and conquers. It'd be easy for us to be afraid of him. It'd be tempting to come to him and expect ourselves to be the ones who are about to meet the sharp end of those teeth. But what Revelation invites us to and the rest of Scripture invites us to see is that God has come to you in weakness and with an embrace. That actually in that embrace is the display of His strength. What John will write in his gospel is the means by which he is enthroned is dying on a cross. So the question is, when you come to this text in Revelation chapter 5, do you see Jesus for the kind of hero that he is? Will you let him be the kind of hero that he chooses to be, this kind of hero? Do you see the lion or do you see the lamb? Do you see the one who's come who you expect to rip you to pieces? Do you come to him and expect him to be the one to lead you forward in triumph and empower and acclamation and respect? Or do you see the lion who chooses to be the lamb? Who would conquer you by surrender? Who would gather for himself all the power by relinquishing all the power? Do you see a God who comes to you with ferocity? Or do you see a God who comes to you with gentleness? You must respond to this central pivot of the story of human history. You must choose to see him and to join the song of all the world. To join the song of the nations, of all of creation, the song that's ringing in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea, will you join that song and acclaim him for his sacrificial love? Or will you reject him because he is not what you expected him to be? This is the the danger of the Gospels. This is the danger of this book. This God is not like you demand that he be, not like you would expect him to be. This God is who he is on his own terms all the time. And he will not be chained or boxed in by your own expectations. Do you see the lion or do you see the lamb who is the lion? And if you have been brought to this place in this time to see this vision... Do you feel the effects of that other lion's claws in your back? Are the powers of sin and death still deeply wounding you, chaining you, owning you? Because Jesus here is presented as the key to the release from prison, your deliverance, your ransom. You cannot continue to hope to fight against the powers of evil both within you and without you on your own terms. This choice is not going to result in your freedom. It is not permitted to you to be the hero of your story. 
It's not allowed. And if you continue to pursue it, you will align yourself with slavery, with the beast who we'll see in this book, who tries to mock him and ape himself to be the one who is the lamb. You cannot be your own hero. And if you have spent your whole life flexing your muscles and trying by your own power to free yourself from these chains, to free yourself from the grasp of this enemy, you will not do it. And today is the day to surrender. The the options before you is sin and evil will reign or Jesus will reign. There is no middle ground. There is no co-ownership of the role. It is Jesus is the hero or darkness will be your God. And Jesus is presented before you as the lovely option, as the beautiful one who would sacrifice his own life because he loves you, who would look at the specter of death to see the flames of hell, as it were, flickering over his face. And to choose it. To enter into it. And to go through it so that he might carry you into his kingdom. He is worthy. And he is good. And you can trust him with all that has so easily entangled you. And even you, who might be in the depths of darkness, of sin and shame and terror and pain, even you buried under the earth, Jesus might come for you and bring you into his kingdom. The one who is the lion and the lamb is so different from anybody else and so much better. Would you come and worship him this morning that he might deliver you and free you into life with him forever? Let me pray for us. Father, we, we thank you for this vision that you gave to John. We thank you that the question who would be worthy to open up this seal has been answered in the lion lamb. Father, I pray that that question, who is worthy, who is worthy, that, that plagues John, that brings him to tears, would also ring in our own head and in our own hearts who is worthy, who is worthy. And Father, I pray that you would not allow us the, uh, another moment to believe that the answer is me or, or something, um, security from some other source, some other all-conquering hero, But instead, Lord God, I pray that you would present yourself. He is worthy. He is worthy. And that those words wouldn't just be outside of our ears that coming in, but they would flow from inside 
us to out our mouth, that we would ourselves be a confessing people. Only He is worthy. That Only He is worthy. He has done it. He has ransomed His people. Slain for our benefit. His blood purchasing life with Him. Father, I pray for those who who have spent their life edging away from you, terrified that you were indeed only a lion that would consume them. I pray, God, that you would comfort them with the good news that you are loving and gentle and kind, that you lay down your life for them because you love them. Not a little bit, not because you're obligated. You love them as ferociously as a lion hunts. This morning, I also pray, God, for those who have been hunted down by the enemy of their soul, who have been stalked and oppressed. Father, I pray that you would shut the mouth of the enemy, the devourer that has chomped at their heels all their life, and you would deliver them. Father, I pray that you'd help us all to marvel at the unexpected beauty of who you are. Pray, Jesus, that you would help us to take true delight in you. To take delight that you are our high priest forever. You are the one who's brought us into heaven with you. You've carried us with you. You are the Lamb who is worthy and the shepherd of our souls. We love you, Lord Jesus. We love you not enough. Our love is often cold. I pray, God, that you would inflame our hearts with love, that we'd see again the beauty of the gospel, the good news of God's victory, in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. We're so thankful for what you've done for us and what you've won for us. There's no one like you, Jesus. No hero who's ever walked has been like you. We love you. Amen.